Amen. Beloved, would you please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Do we get to be in Romans chapter 8 again? What a blessing. I never want to leave. I'm already sort of, you know, you kind of get in a book you're really enjoying and you're getting into the last chapters and thinking, oh, no, it can't end. Uh, this is how I feel about Romans 8. It's such a marvelous chapter, the heights of uh, the glory of, of Christ and His work for us and the work of the Spirit, the love of God the Father. Please stand with me as we look uh, once again at this section, Romans 8, 28 through 30, and specifically zeroing in on verse 30 uh, today. And uh, I do want to begin in verse 26 as I think it's important that we are reminded, uh, even as we look to this text, that this is set in the context of a chapter that's dealing with the suffering people of God. Remember, all the way back at the beginning of this section of Romans 8, we're reminded that the sufferings that we experience are nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. And then he begins to show us all of this in the three groanings. And here in verse 26, speaking about our own weakness. This is the context into which we learn about predestination and calling and and justification and glorification. So look with me at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Uh, would you pray with me? Our Father, as we once again come to this majestic, Christ-exalting text, we pray that you would feed us, strengthen us, rebuke us, correct us. We pray that any wrong thinking would be removed from the decks of our minds and replaced with biblical furniture, sound doctrine that gives glory to you as the one true living and sovereign God who works all things according to his will and for the benefit of the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Operation Torch. Operation Torch. It was the first major military offensive of the Allied forces in the Second World War took place on November 8, 1942. The Nazi war machine had already invaded several countries in Europe, including France. And the U.S. and British military, they needed a secure avenue to get infantry and weapons onto the continent. Conceived in Washington and London, the plan was to make a three-pronged invasion of North Africa. The preparation for this strategic attack was extensive, as is often the case with human planning. But as also is, is often the case with human planning, the operation didn't go quite according to plan. Due to bad weather and rough seas, dozens of vessels landed two to three miles from the rally points that were designated. Airplanes were taken way off course. 
several boats ran aground and boats sank before they could even engage the enemy. Confusion and miscalculation were abundant. There was hope that the Vichy French soldiers would lay down their arms when the Allied forces came ashore. But that hope was dashed when bullets began to fly and take many lives and destroy numerous vessels. Historian Rick Adkinson explains that, quote, President Eisenhower's uncertainty over the progress of Operation Torch was shared by every soldier in the Algerian and Moroccan beachheads. No man knew anything irrefutably except what he had witnessed. Sailors at sea could see nothing except gun flashes ashore. Soldiers ashore remained ignorant of what was beyond the next hill. Commanders received fragmentary reports and proved to be incomplete or contradictory or wrong. For neophyte troops, this first combat experience was revealing. War was fought by ignorant armies on dark plains, end quote. I'm reading this book right now, and what has really been communicated to me is the absolute chaos and wildness and madness of war, even with such grand plans. Plans that were planned by the greatest military minds in the world, but things went sideways. But dear ones, it's not only military plans that don't work out. We've all experienced plans that have gone awry. We've had it all worked out. We've had it all worked out in our minds, perhaps amongst others that we know and love. We've got it all worked out. This is the way it's going to be. And then it's not like that. The fact is, for all of us, the best laid plans are but optimistic uncertainties. The best laid plans by any of us are but optimistic uncertainties. We just never know how things are going to go. But dear ones, this is not true for God. This is not true for God. God's purpose and plans are never uncertain. God never says, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. God never says, I hope it works out. God's plans and purpose are never unsure. The omnipotent and all-wise God works all things according to the counsel of His will. And, of course, the all things includes, how could it not, it includes the salvation of His people. It strikes me as unusual at times when Christians will speak about the sovereignty of God only in relation to good things, never in relation to bad things, and also never in relation to salvation. But somehow He's sort of only sovereign and omnipotent over certain things over here, not all things, and not our salvation. Robert Haldane, the great 19th century Scottish theologian, was right when he said, quote, nothing is contingent in the mind of God. Nothing is contingent in the mind of God. In other words, when it comes to God's will, nothing is unsettled. Nothing is subject to chance. There is no risk of God's purpose going unfulfilled or drifting even slightly off course. There is no possibility 
of God failing to save his people to the uttermost and to bring them home to glory. The inspired apostle is making this point, isn't he? In the passage that we are looking at this morning. Look there again at verse 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Remember from a few weeks ago when we looked at verse 28, this doesn't say that all things are good, that all things that happen in life are good in and of themselves. What he's saying here is that all things mysteriously, because of God's love for us, work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Last week, we unpacked this verse, didn't we? And we saw that foreknow, doesn't, it's not this idea that you look into the, God looks into the future and sees us doing something good or having some inherent faith and then chooses us or predestines us. No, this, this word could be translated for loved. For loved. We'll see this in just a moment. And then we come to the verse for this morning. That those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You may have noticed the title of the sermon this morning, The Golden Chain of Salvation. This comes from a book that William Perkins, the Puritan, wrote in 1608 called The Golden Chain. The golden chain refers to that unbreakable, indestructible link between every action that God performs in the order of salvation, what theologians call the ordo salutis. In other words, it refers to everything that God does to save a sinner from start to finish, from election in eternity past to glorification in eternity future, And everything in between. Every one of these divine actions is a link in a golden chain that will not and cannot be broken. Isn't that good news this morning? It cannot be broken. What God starts, He finishes. What God determines takes place. Therefore, those who are united to Christ by faith need not fear being abandoned by God. They need not fear it. God does not forsake His own. God does not break His plans or His purpose. Even the most trying of times, even in the most trying of times, in the midst of the tears and groanings of life, God is with His people. His Spirit is at work within us. His Spirit is indwelling us and praying in our hearts the perfect will of God. When we don't know what to pray, the Spirit does know what to pray, and He prays for us even as Christ intercedes for us in the courtroom of heaven. All things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So then, it must be said, these verses were not intended mainly for philosophical or theological discussion in the halls of academia. The apostle wrote these verses for the fledgling and persecuted first century church in Rome. Those who, like us, sometimes wondered, because of their circumstances, if God still loved them. 
God was still with them. And here he says, yes. Yes, I do still love you. I am still with you. In fact, he says, I foreknew you. I foreloved you. I forecherished you before the world began. I love you so much that in that love I predestined you unto salvation in his son. And in history, I love you so much, God says, in history I called you effectually by my spirit to be born again, to be united to Christ. And now through faith in him, you are no longer condemned, but you are justified. I love you. I've declared you righteous, not because of the things you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. And I love you so much, I will bring you to glory. Dear ones, this is a powerful word of reassurance for every believer. And no matter what is going on in your life right now, no matter what kind of challenges you're facing, no matter what kind of pain that you are dealing with, just know this, this is more important than any of it, than any of it. What would it be to have the perfect life and then to stand before God still in your sin? To not have a Savior? To be under His wrath and judgment? God says that in Christ you are no longer condemned. And I am with you. So here we have this word of reassurance that we all need. It's not just for the first century Christians in Rome. It's a word of reassurance for you and for me. This golden chain of salvation cannot be broken. Unlike the purpose and plans of great military leaders or our purpose and plans, perhaps big plans and purposes or or small ones, God's purpose and plans for us are fixed and certain. They are always for our good and all to ultimately lead us to the realms of glory, to our eternal home. This is good news. The power of positive thinking is not good news. Suck it up and deal with it is not good news. Entertain yourself to death in the midst of your struggles is not good news. Uh, We know there's not good news coming out of Washington. You see, people are looking in all types of places to find good news and comfort for their souls. And here we have it, Romans chapter 8. And we come to this, this, this golden chain. Here there are four links in the unbreakable chain of salvation. Let's consider each of them in order. Uh, yes, Paul uses the word predestined again within three verses. This is not a Presbyterian tr- translation. Uh, This is from the Greek. Uh, The word predestination is used uh, many, many times in the New Testament. We saw from Ephesians 1 last week as we unpacked the doctrine of predestination that this word is used over and over again. And this is the first link that Paul refers to. Look there again in verse 30. And those whom he predestined. And those whom he predestined. Earlier in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his 
Son. And so we spent the entirety of our time last week unpacking this precious doctrine, and indeed it is precious. Again, we learn that the word foreknew does not refer to God's foreknowing before time, our inherent goodness, or our intrinsic faith, and then predestinating us on that basis. Oh, look at Johnny. He's such a good kid. He's, he's got this inherent faith in him, and he's, he's, he helped his mom cook dinner tonight. I'm going to predestine him. I'm going to choose him. I'm going to, I'm going to set my predestinating love on him because of who he is, or as it pertains to a, a girl or a woman, who she is. Oh, no. The only thing that God sees when he looks into the future, as it were, are depraved sinners. You see, to believe in some kind of foreknowledge of works and God predestinating us based on those works is a works salvation. And by the works of the law, no man shall be justified. Michael Horton, in his wonderful book, I'll recommend it to you, uh, Putting Amazing Back Into Grace. Uh, It's a book that really uh, God used to bring me to a biblical understanding of God's sovereign grace, putting amazing back into grace. He says this, quote, This doctrine, predestination, takes grace to its logical conclusions. If God saves me without my works, then he must choose me apart from them too. No, we learned last week that the word no in the Bible often refers to love. Adam knew his wife, and they conceived. God knew his people Israel. In other words, he loved them and he treasured them. Jesus will say to the false believers at the judgment, go away from me, I never what? Knew you. Of course he knows them. He's, he's God. He knows everybody. He knows everything about everybody. He's the, the, the supreme judge of the universe. But I never knew you as in I never had a relationship with you. And so here we are taught that God foreloved or forecherished those whom he predestined. Teaching us again that predestination is rooted in and flows from God's infinite love. That bottomless well of love. A love that Paul will say a few verses down that we can be, never be separated from. It should be the prayer of every Christian. Lord, show me. Show me again how high and how wide and how deep and what breadth the love of God has is in Christ Jesus. Dear believer, it's God's love for you and not your love for him that makes your salvation sure. The Apostle John puts it this way in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath bearer for our sins. You see, predestination flows out of the bottomless well of God's eternal Trinitarian Love. He invites us into the communion of the Holy Godhead. God was fully 
content, as it were, in himself before he created anything or anyone. He is love. He's perfect love. And he can only be love because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are in a reciprocal love relationship. The God of Islam, Allah, cannot be love because if you are alone before creation, there's no one to love. God is love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And we are invited into that communion of love through the work of Christ. And that is where our salvation is secure. It's in God's love. His predestinating, choosing love. Dear believer, if you have chosen to follow God, it's because he first chose you. If you've decided to follow Jesus, it's because God foreloved and predestined you by his sheer grace. And he will never let you go. Nothing can separate you from that love. It's the whole point of Romans 8. Nothing can se- What's going on in your life right now, dear believer? What challenges are you facing? What difficulties are just keeping you up at night? It cannot keep you from the love of God. It can't separate you from the love of God. Thomas Manton, in a sermon on Romans 8.30, said this, quote, See here the great love of God. God's love in time cannot be valued enough, but God's love before time should never be forgotten by you. There you have the rise and fountain of all the benefits done unto us. This was ancient love before we or the world had a being. And who are we? Listen to this, please. Who are we that the thoughts of God should so long be taken up about us? Who are we that God had us in his thoughts before the foundation of the world? Your name, if indeed you are in Christ. What a joy and comfort for every Christian. But in the next link in the chain, Paul takes us from eternity past and brings us into human history. Those whom God loves, elects, and predestines before time, he also calls and justifies in time. Let's look at this calling. Again, look there in Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he predestined, he also called. We need to differentiate, of course. We need to distinguish between the outward call of the gospel and the inward call of the gospel. The outward call of the gospel goes to everyone. Wherever the gospel is preached, it is going out. It's a call to repent and believe the gospel. It's a, it's a call to turn from your sin, to turn from the false idols that you have been placing your hope and your trust in. And to look by grace through faith to Jesus Christ for your salvation. That's the the call of the gospel. It goes out. But there's another call. It's the inward call or the effectual call. This call, of course, was referenced earlier in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are what? Called according to his purpose. This is referencing the same call, this effectual 
inward call. It's the, uh, the call of the Holy Spirit, which is irresistible. That when it comes, it, it brings new life. You say, oh, wait just a minute. Isn't God violating our will in this call? The answer is no, because by His grace, He gives us a renewed will. By His grace, He gives us a new heart. I often will pray in my prayers, in my devotions in the morning, Lord, thank You for my salvation. Thank You for giving me a heart that loves You. Because my old one didn't. My heart before the Holy Spirit worked in my life and brought me from spiritual death to spiritual life, my heart didn't love God. I didn't want to serve Him and to honor Him and to give thanks to Him. But after the Lord worked in my life, it's, it's what I wanted to do. It's what I still want to do 30 years later. Never perfectly, but sincerely, I want to give praise to God. It's because God gave me this heart. It's because God gave you this heart that you want to sing to Him. And so this inward call, it comes. It's Paul uh, at the river, and he's preaching, and there are all these ladies there by the river. And it said that, and the Lord opened the eyes of Lydia. What about the other ones? We don't know about the other ones. Maybe some of them came to the Lord as well. Maybe none of them did. Maybe only Lydia. We're only told of her. But it's the point, isn't it? That God opened her eyes to believe the things that he was saying. It's all of grace. If you believe the gospel here this morning, it's because God opened your eyes. Because he gave you a new heart. Because he gave you the gift of faith. Because he brought you from spiritual death into union with Christ and raised you up spiritually. So you are in him. This is the effectual call. There's a wonderful story of Charles Spurgeon uh, standing in the pulpit of the uh, under construction uh, uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle. And he went in and he wanted to test out the acoustics. And there were workers everywhere. Uh, They were up in the rafters working on this building, this massive building to house over 10,000 people. And he said, "Um, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of course, Spurgeon with his booming voice and, and it kind of went throughout the room and, and of course it caught the attention of all the workers. And one of the workers in particular that we know about, he, he kind of stopped and was really struck by that like a thunderbolt. And he went home and that night he could not sleep. He kept hearing this over and over again. And finally, by God's grace, he repented of his sins and he became a Christian. You see, the outward call went... But then it was the inward, irresistible call of the Holy Spirit that drew him to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 36, 26. God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Who's doing this? God is doing it. He's saying over and over I will do this, I will do this, I will do this because I love you. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. It tells us who we were before Christ and who we are in Christ. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is who we are in our natural selves. That's what we learn from Romans chapter 1, 18 through 320. This is who we are in our natural selves. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Why did God do this? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Why does he love me? Because of the great love and mercy that he has for us. Even, verse 5 says, when we were dead, helpless in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be what? Born again. He has done it. He has done it. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Matthew twenty two fourteen, our Lord says, many are called outwardly, but few are chosen inwardly. Ezekiel 37 in the Valley of the Dry Bones, Ezekiel is commanded to preach to the bones, to prophesy to the bones. And he preached and there was a rattling and flesh and tendons coming on to the bones. And the, soon there was a great army there. It's, it's symbolic of the, the raising up of the elect from the four corners of the earth through the preaching of the word of God. You see here, when we think about effectual calling, we remember that those who are predestined shall be effectually called. Those who are effectually called and believe the gospel who have been born again have been predestined. It's the golden chain, which doesn't stop there. We see also that it leads to justification. Look there at verse 30 again. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. He also justified so much of the book of Romans is about this very doctrine, isn't it? The doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We remember again that Romans 1.18 through 3.20 is teaching us about the depravity of all humanity that's in every part of our humanity. Uh, we are corrupted by sin. Our, our minds are darkened. Our, our hearts are hard. Uh, our wills are rebellious. Our affections are poisoned with sin. It's why the world is the way it is today. Uh, we have categories for why the world is the way it is today. And so God, by His grace, sends His Son into the world to save us. He reminds us after this long litany of ways that we are sinful, and that we do not seek God, that we fail to keep the law. Look with me at Romans chapter 3 and verse, verse 20. Romans 3 and start in verse 19. He's telling the 
the Jews and Gentiles, all of us here today, that we are not saved through the works of the law. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law can't save us. It shows us our sin, but it cannot save us. Your average person, your average Christian walking down the street, if you ask them, why will they be let into heaven? Why will they have a place in heaven? They'll say something like this. Well, because I'm living a pretty good life. I'm trying to serve the Lord. I go to church. I'm a member of the church. I I come to the Lord's table. I do all these things. So many have this in mind. But the Bible clearly says we are not saved by the law. In fact, the law only shows us our sin, our exceeding sinfulness, and, and makes us accountable to God who knows all things, who is the sovereign judge. And then we come to the best news, the news that, that brought Luther to saving faith by the Spirit. Verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So you see what's going on here. We cannot be saved by our works. We are saved by grace. We are, we are predestined before the foundation of the world. God, by his spirit, he brings new life by causing us to be born again, by being brought into union with the risen Christ. And so we are saved. We are given a gift at that very moment called faith, whereby we receive the forgiveness of sins and divine righteousness. And so when we stand before God at the judgment, we stand before him no longer condemned in our sins. Our sins have been forgiven. They've been washed clean by the blood of Christ. But we don't stand there naked. We stand there now robed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. So God brings down the gavel and says, not guilty, not guilty, justified. And it's just as if you never committed a sin your entire life. That's your place and position and status before God in Christ. Justified. Those who are predestined are also called. Those who are called are also justified. And those who are justified, finally, he also glorified. He also glorified. As we come to this final link of this chain of salvation, it's important to consider the grammar of our text for a moment. Look there at what it says. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. You'll notice there it's in the aorist tense. It's in the past tense. What's going on here? Well, there is some disagreement about how we should interpret this. Uh, Some will say that we're already participating in the resurrected Jesus Christ glory. 
There's truth to that. Ephesians 2 says that even now we're seated with him in the heavenly places. There's this, this mystical union with Christ where we are already being transformed by, by his spirit and, and by his word. And, and, and we're already, in a way, because we are new creatures in Christ, we, uh, we are already beginning uh, in that work of glorification. Things have already started uh, in that sense. But I would argue that there's more than that going on here. I do believe that's true, but also there's more going on here. And that's that when Paul uses this term glorified in the past tense. In this final link of the golden chain of salvation, he's making the deeply comforting point that the believer's salvation in Christ is so secure so fixed, so certain that our glorification in soul and body can be referred to as if it's already a done deal, as if it has already happened. We sometimes do this in our own conversation, don't we? A person may be bargaining, for instance, at a flea market, and uh, let's say you are uh, bargaining for a chair, and it costs $500, and and, and they say, well, uh, um, okay, uh, we can do $500, and you say, all right, uh, but I want you to add some. For $500, I want you to add in some Taylor Swift tickets. Yeah, it's expensive. And he says, done. Done. Okay. Now, he hasn't even ordered the tickets yet. Perhaps doesn't even know if there are any more available. And yet he says done. Why? Because the full intention is to do it, and so it's as if it's already done. Now, of course, any human illustration falls short, but here in Romans 8.30, Paul is saying, by God's sovereign grace, from first to last, our salvation is done. It's secure, not because of our works, not because of our performance, but because of Christ's works, because of his performance, because of what he has done in our place. Obeying the law, dying on the cross, rising from the dead. That's our salvation is secure in Christ. In Christ, the one who was not spared, the one whom the Father did not spare on Calvary. Again, Robert Haldane comments, quote, Could anything then be more consolatory, more comforting to those who love God than to be in this manner assured that the great concern of their salvation is not left in their own keeping? God, even their covenant God, he writes, hath taken the whole upon himself. He hath undertaken it for them, end quote. Our union with the living Christ makes it like it's already done. Because it is. Because it is. He is in heaven. We are united to him. And because of that, we know that we shall be there too. Now, before we conclude, some might ask, what about sanctification, Pastor? Where is sanctification here? Did Paul have kind of a goof up? Did somebody interrupt him while he was writing this? And he just forgot sanctification. Well, no. Remember earlier in our text, he refers to sanctification 
when he says, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What was the aim of predestination? To be conformed to the image of his son. And so there we have the doctrine of predestination, of sanctification rather. What God predestined before time, he carries out in time in order that we would dwell with him for all time. This is how our sovereign God works in our salvation, before time, in time, and for all time. Amen? Not up to us. We are called to persevere in the Lord by his Spirit. We are called to make diligent use of the means of grace, word, sacraments, and prayer. We are called to honor the Lord and to obey the Lord, but these things are not the basis for our salvation. It is what God has done and is doing in us and through us. The focus of this text, beloved, is God's action from first to last. Our salvation is a work of our blessed triune God. God the Father sets His love upon us and predestines us. God the Son purchases our redemption through His life, death, and resurrection. And God the Spirit unites us to Christ. C.J. Vaughn writes, Everyone who is eventually saved can only ascribe his salvation from the first step to the last to God's favor and act. Human merit must be excluded. End quote. Our plans are but optimistic uncertainties. We never know how our plans are going to work out. But this is not true of God. Our God's purposes and plans are certain, rooted in his love for us and flowing out of his lavish grace in Christ. Beloved, shouldn't this give us grateful hearts? Shouldn't this give us hearts that long to obey and to please him? Let us hold fast to these promises. Do not, by God's grace, do not be overwhelmed by your circumstances. Let them not eclipse God's promises. Put your trust and your hope in the Lord, the one who will never, ever let you go. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this golden chain, uh, for the powerful reminder from your word that those whom you set your love and affection on before the foundation of the world, you also predestine and call and, and justify and, and glorify. And Lord, if we believe this gospel this morning, it's only because you have revealed yourself to us. And oh Lord, as we do not know your secret will and we do not know your plans and purposes as it concerns your electing love and grace, Lord, we pray that if there are any here today who do not know you, that they would... Look to you by grace through faith, for it is through the preaching of the gospel that you are pleased to save sinners like us. And so we pray that you would, as with Lydia, as with Paul on the road to Damascus, as with the Ethiopian eunuch, as with so many of us here today, that you would bring them to saving faith in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.